Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Over the course of his 45-year career, Doug McClement has established himself and his company Livewire as the go-to for capturing live audio on location for broadcast or recordings. He's had a number of dream gigs over the years, but in 2010, when the Winter Olympics were awarded to Vancouver, he thought for sure that his ultimate dream of working the games was about to come true. When I bought the new console in 2008, I thought, well, you know, the Winter Olympics are coming to Vancouver in 2010, and they're going to need somebody to do the opening ceremonies, and I, I should get that call. I've got this new truck, and uh, but I, my console's not digital, so I better get. So I went out and spent $400,000 on this console, $120,000 on this console. And, uh, you know, got it all ready in that, and we never got a call, and we didn't get a call. And then, and then it came down to, like, a, 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 it's like the Olympics are in February. We get a call in, like, January 8th or something are you, uh, to bid on it, to bid. Like, they haven't to bid on the and we bid, and we didn't get it. Some uh, a competitor of mine in Montreal got, got the gig, and I was, I was just crestfallen because I thought, man, for sure. And I ended up, I didn't make 10 cents on the Olympics. Um, and not only did we not get the Olympics, but every video truck in Canada was out in Vancouver for a month. And so there was nothing happening in Toronto for February of 2010. So I lost a lot of money that year. And I was, I thought, well, okay, I'm 55. That's it. I'm never going to get to do the Olympics. That, that, up that bucket list thing has passed by. In Canada, when you want to capture live sound, you don't say call Livewire. You say call Doug McClement. Doug is one of the good guys in the industry. And he did eventually get to work the Olympics a few years later. But the story of how he got there is truly fascinating. So I wanted to start at the very beginning. So usually I start in the middle and then work my way back. But in this particular case, I actually want to start at the beginning. And I'm, I'm curious, how did you become interested in sound recording? Um, I, my, I grew up in a family. I, I mean, my dad, uh, who sadly just passed away a couple of weeks ago, he, he wasn't that musical. Well, he's a big country fan. But my mom, we always had a piano in the house. And my mom sang in the church choir and I sang in the choir, sang at weddings and stuff before my voice changed and uh, was interested in music. And then along came the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And that was like some, I mean, if you interview a lot of guys in the music biz my age, that was a cosmic lever, especially for those of us, I think, from small towns where, wow, that's happening out there somewhere, you know, and, and I want to be part of that. And I remember my my Uncle Jack um, played country music uh, at home. He had an acoustic guitar. And I asked my mom the day after, so it'd be like February 64, can we go down to Uncle Jack's and borrow his guitar? And so I go down, he pulls this guitar out of the closet, and we stopped at a local music store on the way home and got a chord book. And I started taking guitar lessons in grade, I, was, I would have been 11, so uh, grade six, I guess. And then you fall in with some other guys and you have little bands. And we played at Christmas shows at the public school and at house parties and, you know, had little rock bands through high school. And I, then I got a part-time job um, at a stereo store called International Sounds that sold a uh, Telefunken and it was owned by a German guy. It was a Telefunken and Grundig and Blaupunkt and all these things. And I bought a reel-to-reel tape recorder and I started taping our little band. And then some of the other Kingston uh, groups asked me to come out and record their bands. And so I got into this habit of live recording in uh, at Queens pubs and, and at various bars in downtown Kingston. Ended up building a little uh, four-track studio in my parents' basement in the 70s when I was going to Queens. And I, I took commerce in Queens. I didn't take electronics or music. But um, 
so oh God, my, I can see my dad um, sawing a hole in the wall between the rec room and the laundry room. And I was in there in the laundry room with my two little mixers and my four track tape deck and the bands would be in the rec room. And, and my parents put up with rock bands rehearsing. Our, our house was always the rehearsal house for some reason. So they put up with rock bands in the basement from the time I was 12 to the time I graduated from Queens when I was 22. And when I was down there at Christmas this year, I noticed in the ceiling, there's still divots in the acoustic. It was a classic Eastern Ontario rec room, right? So they had the acoustic tile ceiling. And there's divots where guys just had taken their guitars off and hit the ceiling. Yeah. And I said to mom, you never got those repaired? She says, I'll never get those repaired. That reminds me of all the great music and fun you guys had down there with your friends, you know, and kind of got choked up thinking about it. But, but uh, yeah, they put up with a lot of flack for having long hairs in the basement all these years, but they were really, really supportive of my music career. And I played in bar bands all through university and paid my tuition and, you know, six nighters during the summer, during the summer and three nighters when school was on during the winter, back when you could do that. I played 180 nights on my second year of Queens. Like we just played bars all the time. I was making as much as much as my dad and, uh, and, and every penny, since we didn't have internet or video games, every penny went into recording gear or concerts. And so, you know, I'd buy some better microphones and somebody would come in and do a, a song, a songwriter, and I'd, I'd buy a better, um, you know, a reverb unit or something and just gradually build it up. So I, I moved to Toronto in 75 um, and rented a house in East York in Papen O'Connor area and, and set up my little four track in the basement there. And I was, so was it, was it the same equipment that you had in your parents' basement? Yeah. Originally. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Four track TAC and a Revox two track and a couple of four channel mixers and real Mickey Mouse sort of set up and um, would go downtown and plaster up, um, flyers at guitar stores and at Steve's Music and at Long Island Quays. Uh, uh, tired of playing the uh, inflated rates at Toronto Studios? Here, come to Comfort Sound, $20 an hour for, you know. And uh, I didn't know <laughs> anything. And uh, and I was working at TD Bank as a computer programmer during the day, 9 to 5, and doing the studio evenings and weekends. And at first it was like 10 hours a week of recording and 40 hours a week at the bank. And then it got to be 40-20, and then it got to be 40-30. And by about 1970 seven or eight had reached the point where am I going to be studio guy or am I going to be bank guy? And I, I quit the bank and went full-time into, into recording at that point, but it started as a hobby and it just gradually, I mean, I didn't know any, I came up here, the only musicians I knew were Kingston people that had moved down here a couple of years before. So uh, Colleen Peterson and who I played bass with in Kingston and Mark Haynes, and they were my first clients. And then it's kind of branched out from their musical friends and from some of the people I met through putting up these flyers. And, and so, um, it, it was it was sort of that type of thing, and, and mostly acoustic-based musicians at that point. Uh, there was a big bluegrass, uh, electric bluegrass scene in Toronto that, then, and I was sort of plugged into that a little bit. And then um, the house, I got, I got a letter from the zoning people. Somebody in the on the street complained that I was running a business on the residential street, and I got a letter from the city saying you can't, you're not zoned commercial. You you have two weeks to shut this down, or we're going to shut you down. So I had to find a commercial space um and so i i looked downtown first and i couldn't really afford any place really downtown so i found a, an abandoned uh, sign painting shop up at dufferin and rogers road to 2033 dufferin just north of rogers and it had an apartment on top so i took over that place in 78 i think summer of 78 and uh moved all my gear up there 
And by this time I'd quit the bank. So, so I full time and that place sort of went from four track to eight track to 16 track to 24 track fairly shortly. And, and uh, um, a lot of people would suddenly record with us up there that wouldn't approach us before because, oh, you were in the basement of a house and it was kind of Mickey Mouse. And, but now you're a studio, you know? And, and so, you know, a couple of record, we started getting business from record companies and from CBC and, and most importantly, um, Chum FM. And, and uh, Chum FM was doing, this just shows how long ago it was in the 70s. Chum FM was doing a weekly folk music show from the Groaning Board restaurant on Bay Street, which was a, Toronto's first non-smoking vegetarian restaurant. I mean, that was a really novel concept in 1978. I remember people, what do you mean we can't smoke? It's a restaurant. What are you, what are you talking about? Uh, and, uh, and they would have like Stan Rogers and uh, uh, all the folkies of, the, of that day. And, and even like David Wilcox and, and uh, David Bradstreet and Rosalie Sorrells, John Hammond we did there. Um, and, and so um, I'd bring my gear and set it up in the basement and, um, and do that. And then we started using, a, there was a company called um, Fantasy Sound that did institutional recording. They would record like high school bands and public school choirs and church choirs and the RCMP band and, and, and press up a thousand albums and those people would sell the albums and you know, raise money to go on a school trip or something to Chicago. And so uh, their truck, since they were just doing that during the week, their truck was available on weekends. And I, and since I was doing some engineering for them, I started renting their truck for some of these um, chum gigs. So by 79, I guess I'm doing the, the this bi-weekly show for chum and the, the, the Elma combo by then is in full swing doing broadcasts. Uh, a company called Hammerhead Audio was doing the live broadcast. It was Mike Elder and, and, uh, John Cardina and Ed Weidman, and they did all the all the ones that people really know about that Meatloaf and Elvis Costello and uh, uh, the Cars and all the, they did all, all those early uh, Todd Rundgren they did all those early broadcasts. But sadly, um, um, Ed Weidman, one of the three guys, died in a car crash in um, at the end of '79. And Warren Cosford, who was the head of special projects for Chum at the time, phoned me up and said, "Doug, the." Hammerhead Audio, they don't want to really continue doing these album shows now that Ed's gone. They got other things going on. Um, you've been doing these folk shows. Uh, do you think you have enough equipment to go over the Elmo combo and do these rock shows for us at the Elmo? And I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. And I really didn't, but I said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, can you swim? Yeah. You know, can you ride a horse? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, so February of 80, I started doing the Elmo combo shows for Chum. I remember the first one was B.B. Gabor, this record release party for his first album. And, and, uh, and of course, back then, it's three or four years before much music. So the way that record companies would promote new bands was doing live radio broadcasts. There was no rock and roll television. So we started doing them for, that was the summer that Q107 and CFNY came on the air around that time. And so we started doing the live broadcasts for all three of those stations. Um, and... Um, Were you, sorry, sorry, just to go back, are you, is, is all this with you being a one-man operation? Yeah, well, at this point, I probably had another guy. I had uh, Tom Shapiro work for me for a while and Mark Kay. But, yeah, it was freelancers mostly working yeah. with me. And then um, um, New Year's Eve, 78, I had the Fantasy soundtrack at the Groaning Board recording a band called um, Short Turn, a really nice little folk trio. And, and uh, driving back, the truck hit a patch of ice where that where Davenport and Bay have that sort of jog there in front of uh, Jesse Kessler school mm -hmm. and the truck hit uh, flipped over and totaled and uh, with me in it, my wife and my assistant for the day. And luckily nobody was hurt, but um, 
I trashed this truck that belonged to these other guys. And, and um, they were in Venezuela for Christmas. I had to phone them up. And that was one of the scariest phone calls of my life. I was so nervous that I wrecked all this stuff. And, and the guy, his name was Irv Fisher. Is it Irv? I, while you were away, we, we had a, an accident with your truck. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, the truck's totaled. And then uh, he said, did anybody get hurt? And I said, no, fortunately, nobody got hurt. He says, oh, man, that's great, because we were going to sell that truck, and we'll get way more from the insurance than, than we would have selling it. So you solved a problem for us. So thanks. Click. And I'm like, what? What just happened? You know. And so meanwhile, I had all these shows lined up for Chum and no truck. So it kind of forced my hand into going out and getting a bank loan and building our first mobile truck. And that was where Comfort Sound Mobile started. We got the little yellow cube van um, in 79, spring of 79. I think the last show we did without the truck was the police at the edge. And uh, that, cause that was March 29th, 79. And, and the first show we did with the truck was sometime in April. So um, we started doing those. Now we didn't have two sets of gear. So all the gear in the studio was on wheels on, in road cases. And we just wheel it out of the studio into the back of the truck. The truck had air conditioning and shelving and power and that was it because i couldn't afford two sets of gear so we would wheel it in and out and and uh we did hundreds of remotes with that truck uh, following that and um including stevie ray vaughn at the elma combo and steppenwolf and joan jed and clarence clemens and uh miami steve van zandt the water boys midnight oil like all those chum shows were done with that little cube van um and then um it's uh Around 84, MTV came on the air and Canada started clamoring for its own music channel. And um, by then we, we were doing all those city simulcasts with City TV and Chum. And so City and Chum applied for the video license for Canada saying, well, we're already doing this. Basically, we do these simulcasts and we've got the new music show on City and we've got all these, these interviews stockpiled, you know, and give us the license. And so they got the license for a music channel in Canada. And since I was kind of this chum city guy, I sort of became the much music guy. And so we started doing all the concerts, all the big ticket specials, all the MMVAs. They were my biggest client from 1984 to 2000. Much music was 70% of my business, basically all the snow jobs and spring break in Daytona, all those, anything that involved a concert because they didn't really have a studio in the building. Um, they'd call our company and we'd bring the truck over to, to the 299 queen and, and, and record it. And then they built their own studio in 2000 and that kind of dried up. But, but to, for 15 years there, we were the, that was our bread and butter. In fact, we actually moved our studio down from Dufferin street down to queen and Soho just to be closer to much. Cause we did so much stuff for them. And so we, in 84, I guess we moved down to shortly after much started. Uh, um, we, we, we moved our studio down to 26 Soho street and we were there until 94 when I sold the company. That's that's quite a story. So when when did you start calling it Comfort Sound? Um, right in Kingston, because the band, I, the rock band I played in, the cover band I played in Kingston was called Country Comfort originally, and then the agency said, "Well, we can't book you if you're called Country Comfort uh, in rock clubs." Um, so, because because after we formed the band, the drinking age went down to eighteen from twenty one, and so suddenly all these bars that have been hardcore country bars uh, for years in Kingston suddenly said, "Gee, how can we?" That that meant that. Uh, you have to look at Kingston in 1971. It's 50,000 people, 10,000 of whom are Queen students. Right. So it's got a, and to this day, it's a quarter of the town. Like it's a huge influence on that town. Between RMC, Queens, and St. Lawrence College, probably 25% of the people in the city are between 18 and 22 going to school, going to concerts, buying records. So 
all those bar owners said, how can we latch into that student market? Oh, they like that crazy rock and roll. Let's get some bands that play that. And so often that summer of 71, we were the first rock band in a bar that had been country for 20 years. And it was, it was weird. It was, it was a tense time, but, but there was lots of work. And so, um, our band was called Country Comfort after the Rod Stewart Elton John song. And, and then we, we changed it to Comfort. And so the studio became Comfort Sound. Oh, okay. and, and when I moved to Toronto, I called it Comfort Sound. That's the origin. It was from the band name. So I've got, I do have a question, though, about um, your time at the TD Bank. Yeah. So when you moved here, you moved here, got the job at TD Bank as a computer programmer. And around that same time, I was in high school and I took computer studies in high school and computer studies at the time meant filling out a whole bunch of punch cards sending them to the school board to run and then a week later you'd find out whether or not you made a mistake yeah and if you left out a comma it didn't work and you lost a week so for someone who's a computer programmer that's actually working at that time in the mid-70s what did that entail well i took some computing for like, like going again being in the high school across the street from queens like literally across the street from the university kcvi where all the tragically hip and went and okay. don cherry went there and you know, robertson davies went there um it's uh um all or uh, hip for 10 years after me but but we, we had a, a little computer department with some um with four uh key punches and at the end of the day, the teacher would take the thousand cards in a box and take it over to Queens and they'd run it on the computer and come back the next day. And so we were studying Fortran and COBOL. And then oh, at university, I, I took, there was very little business data processing when I was there from 71 to 75, but I took every, I took commerce and I took the minimum number of commerce courses and I took every computer course I could take without losing my commerce status. In fact, I still have the letter from the commerce department from second year saying, look, do you want to be in co- computers or co- like, you know, do you really want to be in commerce? And, and, uh, and so, um, and by the end of it though, the, the landscape changed so much that by 75, when I graduated compute commerce, people with computer savvy were in demand. And, and the three or four of us that were kind of into that, we had, I had seven job offers coming out of Queens two in all I've boroughs in Ottawa, Manulife in Toronto, uh, some computer service companies. And I got hired by Manulife. This is funny. I didn't put this in the bio, but I, I got hired by Manulife. So I come to Toronto and work for Manulife and they have a, like a month long probation period. And I was kind of building the studio in the basement of the house and going to work kind of tired. And I didn't do a very good job and they didn't keep me on. They let me go after the month. And I'm like, Oh my God, I've, it's the first failure I've had in my life. I've, I'm going to have to go back to Kingston. And, um, there was an agent in Kingston, Bernie Dobbin, bless his heart. He was booked all the bands in Kingston. And when I left Kingston, when I left the band, I was in a band called Crazy Legs by that time. I said, well, Bernie, I'm moving up to Toronto. Uh, I'm going to have to leave the band. You're going to have to find another bass player. And instead of the sort of pat in the back and, hey, good luck, I thought I'd get from Bernie. He goes, you'll be back. They always come back. And so when I got kicked out, of, not kicked out, but when I got let go at Manulife, I thought, I can't go back to Kingston. I'll let Bernie Dobbin go i told you <laughs> i can't give him that satisfaction so i borrowed some money from my folks to pay the rent and i said i'm going to finish building this studio before i get another job so it won't be a distraction so i took the rest of the summer off built the studio and then in october i went and applied to td and got a, I had to apply somewhere where they had a big training program so i ended up at td and i worked there for three years but basically fortran and cobol on punched cards no terminals no no video terminals then I quit just when that was coming in, when the, when the green machine, I remember being at the meeting where they were trying to decide what to call the, the ATMs for TD. 
it was at one point it was going to be Johnny Cash or something and and or the Green Machine and the overwhelming vote of the I can still see us. I'll put we were at the O'Keefe Center. They had the meeting at the O'Keefe Center. And we all put our hands up when they said Green Machine, and that's what they chose to call it TD. But it was very primitive, and and but I, I'm still friends with some of the people that I. I uh, it's funny you mentioned basketball. We we played bat. A bunch of us TD guys had a basketball thing. We played every Wednesday night at some uh, Catholic high school out in the East End near uh, uh, Salmon Avenue and mm-hmm. uh, Coxwell, and and we played for years. And and it sort of it started out as all TD guys, and then it just gradually you know friends brought friends, and it sort of became this. But I still socialize with. We still get together for Super Bowl every year. Those guys. Still, so I kind of they're all retired now, but. Uh, you know that was they were a great bunch of folks and I, I enjoyed my time at TD but I remember handing in my resignation to, to my manager and saying well I'm going to try this re- give this recording thing I try for a couple of years because that's kind of where my heart is and, and uh, we'll see what happens and I'm my parents are kind of like you're quitting the bank to go into music <laughs> and uh, and you know my income dropped in half instantly yeah you know the bank was a pretty good job at the time but but I was here I am 40 years later and I, I'm still love going into work and I've been very very fortunate to get paid for my hobby for 40 years not many people get to do that i mean i'm 68 years old i still like going into work i'm not people say when are you going to retire and i don't know for me retirement is for people that hate their jobs it's like i just i they'll probably be carrying me out in a box you know it's like richard flowhill or uh, hey wait a second he's not in the box yet well no, no that's what i mean like like we're, we're lifers yeah. we're like, like yeah. I, I don't know how to do anything else at this point my um I, I'm very, very, I've met some wonderful people, had some great experience. I would have made three times as much money if I'd stayed at the bank, but you know, it's not about money. Yeah. You get paid in other ways too. You know, I'm not starving. I got clothes. Uh, you can only eat so many meals. You can only wear so many clothes. I'm, I'm driving a 14 year old van, you know, like, but I've, you know, I'm going to spend more on a computer next week than I spent on my van. You know, it's, it's just, uh, it is the, it's the way it is. Uh, um, it's a, and I'm still involved in music. It's, it's and, and especially with the live recording, I found I sold the studio in 1994 because I found that you get reach a point with a studio where it gets very predictable, and you're kind of doing beer commercials for 14 hours, like a 30 second commercial, over and over and over. And I'm sitting there one day, I said, "This isn't fun. This is like a job." Um, and there's guys on the couch saying, "Oh, we can't hear Molson. We need to hear Molson's better." And Oh God, just kill me now. Whereas, whereas with the live recording, you go out and you do 35 songs and you go home and here's the tape and it's still music, you know, whether it's opera or country or death metal or jazz or reggae, it's still music. It's still people, something people are passionate about and I can get behind that passion. Even if I don't like the music, I can appreciate the talent and the drive. And, and if I can help somebody get that onto a piece of plastic that people are going to enjoy, that makes me feel good. So, so it's uh that's more rewarding to me. The studio got a little bit predictable after a while. Also with the truck, we started at that point by the eighties, in addition to the truck, we had a second system in flight cases that we could fly anywhere. So that rig by the late eighties, we were going to Israel and Kuwait and Nigeria and Germany and Spain and across Canada where people needed a multi-track recording, but there were no trucks or you couldn't, or even in Toronto doing bare naked ladies at the top of the CN tower. Well, you're not taking the truck up there. So you had to have portable gear that you could do that with. So the half of our business is truck business and half of it's air pack portable rig stuff. And so, so um, that became very, uh, and those were, those are always challenging and interesting because you get, I love traveling and I like audio. So if people pay me to travel and do audio, that's, Wonderful. You know, I, I love doing that. When you sold the business in 94, 
Comfort Sound was already doing remote recording, and then you start Livewire, which does remote recording. So that's when Livewire started. So, so I sold Comfort Sound Studio and I kept the truck. So a woman okay. named Lee Sand bought the studio on Soho Street and kept running it with the staff. And I sold her the name and the assets of the studio on the condition that and I paid off all the, any outstanding debt from the studio. So she bought it clean, clean and clear. And I walked with the truck and, re, and had to rename the truck because she owned the name Comfort Sound. So I called it Livewire. So 94 is when Livewire started, which is 27 years ago now. Um, and uh, at that time, we had we graduated. The, the, the cube van had worn out and we'd replaced it with a five-ton truck, a 26-foot box truck. Because by then we had a, a had a second set of gear. By about '85 or so, I went out and got a bank loan and bought a. Because we got sick of. By that time, we were doing 80 or 90 shows a year, and it was just cannibalizing the studio gear too much. So we bought a second set of gear that permanently lived in the truck. So we had a, a 24 track reel to reel tape deck and a, a 50 input console, and that truck sort of stood alone. So I did that in '95, and then in um, 2001, that truck kind of wore out after 15 years, and we got a semi-trailer a 32 foot semi-trailer which is what i have still have to this day is, is everything's in a 32 foot trailer with a pop outside and and now it's it's 96 tracks of pro tools and 96 track ssl console and because the shows just get bigger and bigger every year there's more and more inputs and surround sound now of course rather than stereo as well so it's all five one and in fact we've just outfitted the truck for dolby atmos so now we have 10 speakers in there it's uh, it's coming Jeff, Jeff Bezos says, don't bet against the future because the future always wins. And, and he's right. And, and so, you know, I, as much as I'm not crazy about the Atmos stuff, I have to have it because my clients are going to start asking for it. And I've got to be ready when they start asking for it. So we've got it all wired up. We've got the gear in place for Atmos when it starts to really happen. So you've been involved with a ton of really huge events over the years. Are there anything that kind of sticks out in your mind? I'm wondering if you could share some stories from like the initial call. And what, you know, what your reaction to that was through to the challenges of putting on that event and some of the. Uh, uh, well, yeah. yeah, there there's well, there's been a ton of them. Um, the um, I remember the, doing those first shows for Chum. I was just gazed to be doing something and hearing it on the radio, you know, here, like moving a fader and knowing the people across Toronto were hearing that in their cars and at home. And it's a, kind of a powerful feeling and, and then the first couple of much music broadcasts same feeling only you're moving a fighter and you know people in vancouver and halifax are hearing you know jeff healy or blue rodeo or whoever the band was that you were doing and and, uh, and those were great so it's funny um you still get on some, some shows you still get that buzz I, I was thrilled the other night at the elma combo doing the first live stream out of there live with our lady peace with a full audience you know um i guess there's a few things. I guess the, one of the first big shows we worked on that had some international acts, there was a producer named Ian Anderson uh, in the 80s who ran a, a TV show called Nashville North on, on uh, CTV and some other, he did the Easter Seals Telethon. And he came up with the concept of a television show called In Session. And it was uh, to be shot at CHCH Studios in Hamilton. And the concept was that you were eavesdropping on a recording session between two old friends or maybe some younger guy that it idolized an older musician and they'd have a house band of Toronto session, a team guys that would learn maybe the 10 or 15 most popular songs by the two artists. And then you'd go in in the morning and set up and they would play a couple songs and tell a couple stories and play a couple songs and tell a couple stories. So that sounded interesting. And then they told me who the lineup was. So it was Johnny winter with Dr. John and then Glenn Campbell with Leon Russell and Emmy Lou Harris with Rodney Crowell, Albert King with Stevie Ray Vaughan, B.B. King with Larry Carlton, Burton Cummings with Don Everly, 
So we did 26 episodes of this. Chet Atkins with Leona Boyd. Like it was just amazing television and, and legendary to this day. So people love that Stevie Ray Vaughan one with Albert King. It's, it's one of the most popular. And we, at the time it was just a weekly show that we were doing. And they, they sent, um, the art department sent a photographer down to Sounds Interchange and they took pictures inside that studio and then built a set to look like Sounds Interchange. But they had a, a false glass wall behind, a plexiglass wall behind us in the control room so they could shoot over our shoulders through the console to the band. And it was just magical because it was totally unscripted. And uh, and just, you know, the artist was, oh, let's do this song. And the band would, okay. And, and uh, no, that reminds me of that time that we were you know, backing up Frank Sinatra. Like when Leon Russell was talking to Glenn Campbell. You remember that time? And and so we got to just, you were, after a while, they'd forget the cameras were rolling. It was just like being a fly on the wall. And that show um, got me a lot of work because it was on CHCH and people, it, it was fairly had a fair bit of notoriety and oh you do that show well i guess you could do our band then so it kind of opened the door for me to the record companies and but it, it was a thrill and to this day there's a bunch of those shows up on youtube that people must have taped off the air on vhs or something and people oh i saw your name roll by on that burton cummings don everly you know or bruce coburn with rick emmett show and oh yeah that's like 40 years ago now or 38 years ago now but we did two seasons we did one season in 83 and then five years later they did a second season in 88 which is funny but um, it was uh, that, so that was a, a real highlight and, and it was um, just done on a shoestring, but really good. They had really good camera people and Ron Maraska, the legendary Ron Maraska was the director and it looked great. And, and uh, you know, the fact that they recorded it on multi-track, that was very rare for um, television at that time. We, we recorded the whole thing on 16 track, two inch. So when Stevie Ray passed away, they were able to locate the footage and the 16 track tape and remix that for a DVD, which was fortunate that they had kept all that stuff on multi-track and, and Jimmy Vaughn, his brother mixed the stuff down in Memphis. And that DVD is a remix of the, the original show. Um, so that was a, a highlight. Um, you know, the, the chum, getting the, the chum radio broadcast was a real highlight for us because, because that was all, a lot of people listened to those simulcasts and, and that opened the door for us an awful lot. Um, I guess more towards what your question is. I remember getting the call to do the the Sarstock uh, concert at Downsview in 2003, and it was such a big show. There were 15 bands in the one day. They were expecting half a million people, and, and um, traditionally on an award show, we use two audio trucks. So one band does all the even numbered bands, and one truck does the even numbered bands, and one does the odd numbered bands because you you don't have time to strike 40 mics and set up 40 mics for the next band. So while band, while Brian Adams is on stage, I'm setting up for, you know, Nickelback. And while Nickelback's on stage, the other truck is setting up for the third Easy. act. And right. So so at, at the Sarstock thing, we had three trucks because it was 15 bands. So it was my truck, the CBC truck, and the uh, silver mobile out of uh, New York City that does the Grammy Awards, uh, Dave Hewitt's truck. Um, and so, so it was just luck of the draw who we got to do because it was just a function of what order the band was on the show. So I ended up with ACDC and, 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 and cause, cause the uh, silver truck was going to do the stones. Cause that, that was part of the deal was the stones wanted the truck that does them at the Grammys all the time. And they brought Ed Cherney up the legendary Ed Cherney to engineer in, in that truck. But it meant that I got to do ACDC and I'm sort of going, yes, you know, I, I'd rather do ACDC than the stones. So, so um that was kind of, that was a, an amazing day. We we had one day of setup, one day of rehearsals, and then one day show. So we were there for three days, and it was it was pretty 
phenomenal like the circus coming to town and to, to open the back door that we were right beside the stage our truck was you could walk off the roof of our truck onto the stage and so to open up the back door of our truck and look out and you could just see that that you could there's people as far as you could see like you couldn't see the edge of the crowd at the back and that was a pretty momentous thing to bring up your audience mics and hear half a million people and it was hot we did who did we do we did uh, justin timberlake the isley brothers tea party um acdc and i forget who else we we did five bands anyway that, that day but i ended up mixing the whole dvd they hired me to mix the entire dvd so all the tapes ended up at my studio and we we spent a month mixing that that dvd there in five one so how, how did you get involved with the olympics um that's a funny story the um when i bought the new console in 2008 I thought, well, you know, the Winter Olympics are coming to Vancouver in 2010 and they're going to need somebody to do the opening ceremonies. And so I, I should get that call. I've got this new truck and, uh, but I, my console's not digital. So I better get, so I went out and spent $400,000 on this console, $420,000 on this console and, um, you know, got it all ready in that. And we never got a call and we didn't get a call. And then, and then it came down to like, a, 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 like, it's like the Olympics are in February. We get a call in like January 8th or something. Are you, uh, to bid on it, to bid like they haven't to bid on the and we bid and we didn't get it. Some uh, a competitor of mine in Montreal got got the gig and I was I was just crestfallen because I thought, man, for sure. And I ended up I didn't make ten cents on the Olympics, um, and not only did we not get the Olympics, but every video truck in Canada was out in Vancouver for a month, and so there was nothing happening in Toronto for February of 2010. So I lost a lot of money that year and. I was, I thought, well, okay, I'm 55. That's it. I'm never going to get to do the Olympics. That, that up, that bucket list thing has passed by. Two years later, I get a call from Sheila O'Brien who directs just for laughs and, and uh, the YTV awards. And like, we'd done hundreds of shows together. Uh, uh, she does all the Gemini's and the genie awards and stuff that we, we do a lot of award shows. And she said, Doug, I've just been hired to uh, direct the medal ceremonies in Sochi in 2014. I get to pick all my own camera guys and audio guys. How would you like to do the audio? And I'm like, yeah, like, I'll bring coffee to the guys that are doing it. Like, just get me on the plane. And so I went over and we were, and uh, there's an organization called OBS, Olympic Broadcast S Services, that hires all the camera and audio and staging and lighting people for the Olympics. They're kind of like the tech people for the broadcast. And there's 8,000 of us. I mean, it's a, it's a big organization. Um, because you can imagine 50 venues with, and each there's probably 50 crew at each venue. So it's thousands of people. So we went over and did the medal ceremonies and, and I sent a letter to my supervisor, Nuno, Nuno Duarte, who's uh, from Portugal and I, at the end. And I said, well, I had a great time, Nuno, working for OBS and I hope uh, I can work for you guys in the future at some point. And he sent me back an email that said, uh, well, the Summer Olympics are coming up in Rio and it's three times the size of the Winter Olympics. And I'm sure we can find you. There's no medal ceremonies like dedicated stage at the summer Olympics because they give the medals out at each venue. But he says, I'm sure we can find you something to do. So I went over to Rio and did um, audio quality control. And they hired me back to do that same job in Pyeongchang in 2018. And here this summer, I was in um, Tokyo for five weeks doing a different job. I was, I was in charge of the commentators, the English commentators. Um, I was one of the two audio, there's two shifts. There's a 6 a.m. till 2 p.m. shift and a 2 p.m. till 11 p.m. shift. So I was on the late shift and supervising 70 commentators in 35 vocal booths uh, um, 
and, and eight engineers at the consoles. And so, and I've just been hired back for Beijing. So I'm heading off to Beijing on January 17th and I'll be there till February 21st because uh, there's two weeks of COVID quarantine before the thing starts. And so we're kind of confined to our, just like Japan, we're confined to our hotels for the first two weeks. And then you're, you're sort of allowed on the bus and at, at the venue and, and at your hotel and that's about it. It's going to be a bubble, like, a, like an NBA bubble. They aren't going to, in Beijing, unlike Tokyo, after two weeks, we, we, could, we, we could sort of go around the city and sightsee. According to the documentation I've got for Beijing, we are going to see the bus, the hotel, and the venue. That's it. We can't even go to other venues. I can't go to any of the hockey games like we could in Pyeongchang. It's, mm-hmm. it's just uh, get over there, get the job done, get back. That's kind of the deal. But hey, it's the Olympics, and it, it's fabulous to work with. Um, I mean, the quality of the engine. It's like an Olympics for techs. Like the, the, the engineers over there, you know, you're sitting around with those guys at lunch and my little group of eight engineers who are doing commentary is three guys from Holland, a woman from Poland, a guy from Germany, a guy from Portugal, a guy from Spain. And it's like, oh, so what do you guys do when you're not doing the Olympics? Uh, I do uh, Premier League soccer, you know, or I do Wimbledon or I do F1 car racing. Uh, I do the Eurovision Song Contest. Like, so they've got these great stories and the road stories are different than all the, you know, American and Canadian road stories. And, and they're really good engineers. Like they're very, very competent um at the olympics they you tend to specialize and so for example for hockey for winter olympics this year the team doing hockey will be canadians and curling will be canadians the the, the uh, tech team doing speed skating will be dutch the uh you know the uh, cross-country skiing they'll probably be norwegians and swedes like in, similar, in the summer olympics the brazilians do soccer the americans do golf the brits do tennis that's the wimbledon crew doing tennis so Everybody behind those consoles has done 10,000 of whatever sport they're doing. Like they really know how to do that sport because it's the primetime sport in their home country, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, you just pick stuff up from talking to those guys. Like, cause like I say, the Brazilians have done 10,000 soccer games. So you, Hey, so how do you make up a soccer pitch? You know, like, what do you have to look out for when you, Oh, well, it's this and this and this. And I just find it as a tech and a nerd tech nerd. I just find it fascinating. And they have all these behind the scenes. And then Ronaldo, you know, they have these great, the same stories we have about rock and roll guys. I'm kind of an odd duck because I'm a music guy with all these sports dudes. Because right. I got in it through the medal ceremonies, which is, is more of a, an award show than a sporting event. Because I've never, I'm not a sports audio guy. I've never done a hockey game. I've never done a baseball game. That's a different tribe. It's like cameramen. The sports cameramen generally don't do the Junos or the um, MMVAs. It's a different mindset as far as camera work goes uh and it's the same thing with audio there's sports audio guys in canada that do all the hockey and football and basketball and baseball and there's entertainment guys which is the sort of tribe i'm with that do concerts and award shows so i've done the the junos for 20 years i guess the past 20 junos i did the much music awards for 27 years um i've done the great cup halftime show for the last 15 years i've done the stratford festival for the last 10 years i've done new year's eve at niagara falls for the last six years and probably the one at City TV at Nathanville Square for 20 years before that. So we have a bunch of annual events that require 70 or 80 microphones that you can't, but can't be done by buddy with a laptop. Let's put it that way. You need a truck to do these big events where you, and it's funny, it's almost not so much about the equipment. You need an accurate control room on location, an accurate monitoring environment on location, which again, buddy with a laptop down in the basement can't really do at the venue you need a, a truck that has a 5-1 accurate control room like a recording studio control room because you're making decisions based on on what you're hearing and, and if what you're hearing is bad then your decisions are going to be bad so you you need a, a a studio on wheels and that's the service that we provide with livewire basically so 
Okay. And uh, bringing it back alive. I like to think that over the 40 years I've been doing this, Livewire has got a rep that hire these guys and you will walk out with a show. Like, um, I always think of, uh, is it Lauren, Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live says about Saturday Night Live, he says, the show doesn't start because it's ready. The show starts because it's 1130. So, in other words, you better be ready because it's starting without you. Like you better have a plan B and a plan C. If your console blows up or this microphone isn't on, you better have some other plan because it's starting at eleven thirty. And so that's the kind. I like to think that's why people hire us is that we're not going to be the cheapest guys in town, but 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 we will have a backup and a backup to that backup, and we will get you. Give us two tin cans and a piece of string, we'll get you to air. Like we'll we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, that's kind of the, where the experience comes in of doing 4,000 remotes over 40 years. Like, like there, there aren't too many situations you run into that haven't happened before. And, oh, well, when that happened in Texas six years ago, we did this, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's kind of what saves our bacon a lot of times because things go wrong. It's live television. Things go wrong. But that being said, um, people sometimes say, oh, man, there's so much pressure. You must feel really you know, stressed and pressure. And, and as I get older, I'm thinking, you know, an airline pilot, that's pressure. You know, that guy hits the wrong switch, you're in the ocean. You know, a surgeon does something wrong and cuts somebody's lungers. Like, like I'm in I'm an audio mixer. What's the worst thing that can happen? I mute the lead vocal, you know, I I miss a guitar solo. Like nobody's gonna die through anything that I'm gonna do at this console. So I find now I don't sweat the small stuff. I used to beat myself up. I'd make a mistake on a show and miss a solo or something. I'd, my wife would see I'd come home and I'd be slamming the doors and I would say, what went wrong? It's, oh, I did this. And, that. and then you realize, you know, five years from now, what difference will that make? Like, really, don't stop. Save that for important stuff and just, otherwise, you, you, gotta, you gotta be like, a, you know, a guy that misses a free throw. You know, you can't be beating yourself up because you'll wreck the rest of your game. Like, it's gonna happen once in a while. Forget that, move on to the next thing, you know? So not that I don't want it to be perfect. That's my challenge every show is to make it as good as you can. But but nobody dies if I make a mistake. So I, I think I, I don't take it quite as, you know, I, it's not quite as uh, life-threatening as it used to be when, when you'd screw up, you know. Before we started recording our interview, Doug caught me up on some of what his upcoming schedule looked like. Like everyone else in the industry, the 20 months of COVID lockdown pretty much shut down his business. But now that events are starting up again, he barely has time to breathe. In addition to his broadcast work, Doug is running the sound studio at the newly reopened El Macombo Club in Toronto, where he's capturing live recordings multiple nights a week and providing content to artists of every genre and level of success. Remember, the next time you're watching an award show coming from Canada, you're probably listening to the work of Doug McClement. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you did, why don't you check out one of the previous episodes? Like this one with Blue Rodeo's Jim Cuddy talking about songwriting. Once I realized I was going to sing these songs over and over and over again, I thought I have to work more on the stories. I have to go deeper into these stories. People connect to what they want to connect to. And, and it's, it's often not necessarily what you want them to connect, connect to. So all I can do is, is write my little novellas and, and put them out there. Please connect with The Creationist Podcast on Facebook or Instagram, or email us at thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a chance, please leave a review or rate us on your favorite podcast platform. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Mm-hmm.